This episode of Reality Escape Pod is brought to you by Morty, virtual escape games, and Patreon supporters like you. Welcome to the Reality Escape Pod, your lifeline when you need to get away from the real world. I'm David Spira, alongside my co-host, PG Law. Together, we're exploring immersive gaming from all angles, and we'll be joined by guests who really know their stuff. Today's guests are Jarrett Lance and Jeff Leinenweber of Scout Expedition Company. Jeff and Jarrett are experienced designers and former Disney Imagineers, best known in the immersive gaming world for creating The Nest in Los Angeles, California, which is the most emotionally charged experience that I've encountered using the escape room structure. And it's ending its second run this summer. Welcome, Jeff and Jarrett. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. I'm so excited to have you guys here. If you're at all invested in the immersive world or escape rooms, you've probably heard of The Nest. It's been one of the most celebrated experiences since it first came out. You guys have been consistently sold out since you first started. Yeah, we've been really lucky. We opened the first version of the show in 2017 and that we sold out for, I don't know, about six months, I think. And then this one has been going since September of 2019. And has been almost entirely sold out. Of course, we had a, a brief pause. Did something happen? Yeah, yeah, I don't, <laughs> I kind of forget. I don't, yeah. I'm one of the fortunate people who had the chance to do both versions of the show. And it's something that I found haunting both times, which is hard to achieve. It's really challenging to go into something for a second time, knowing what to experience, knowing what the emotional journey is like. And to get on that ride a second time and have all those emotions hit and land in the same way or similar ways, it really speaks to how masterful you crafted this experience. I'm thankful that you created it. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, the first version was very experimental in that we were combining a lot of elements from things like, of course, escape rooms, but also video games and our passion for specifically narrative video games like Firewatch and What Remains of Edith Finch and Gone Home and stuff like that, along with immersive theater. Our gateway drug, if you will, to immersive was Sleep No More and Then She Fell. And so we were taking all these things that we were really inspired by and then leveraging our skills and our background and our careers in themed entertainment and the world of theme parks and mash them up into something that we didn't know if it would work or not. And so that first version, we took a lot of risks and we threw it all together. And yeah, we were just really surprised by the reception from it and how well it all worked. And for those who haven't experienced it, can you explain the concept a little bit? Yeah, so basically The Nest is the story of a woman named Josie who recently passed away. And she left all of the belongings that she collected throughout her life from when she was a little girl growing up in the 60s all the way up until now. She left everything inside of a storage unit. And since basically she had no close family or friends at the end of her life, that storage unit went up for auction. And you happen to win that storage room, which is awesome. So now you get to go into that storage unit You just have a flashlight. It's just two people at a time. This is an immersive show. It's a real physical storage unit. So you get to go inside there and explore around in the darkness with your flashlight and look through all the things that she left in there and piece together really the story of her life from beginning until she passed away. And the nest has an escape room structure where there are locks that serve as gates to kind of halt your progress and very light puzzles that you have to solve from experiencing a moment in her life. Basically, it's an escape room without the overt challenge and the frenzied energy that comes from racing against the clock. Since everybody gets through the nest, it's baked into the premise. It's part of what you're being sold. It's a full experience always. Have many players struggled with getting the escape room structure without the escape room energy? Not really. And I think a lot of that comes into the design of the show that, yes, its framework is similar to an escape room. But in all honesty, that was really an accident. We didn't really go out with the plan to make an escape room just as we were developing the story in 2017 and the experience. And we're like, okay, people are going to go from our childhood and then to this and to this. When we looked back, we're like, oh, we created an escape room. But like a little bit more (laughs) than my story, like, oh, right. That wasn't really our original intent. But I think because we do a lot of setup at the beginning of explaining the concept, 
there's no ticking clock inside of the experience. There is on our end when we're running the show, but there isn't that like pulse pounding, oh my God, like countdown clock. There isn't a way to lose, right? Everybody gets to the end, whether you're really fast, whether you're really slow. Honestly, everyone ends up on about the same track, getting through the show in the same amount of time. And because people know that there isn't really like a loose scenario and that the goal is to learn about her life. Very rarely, almost never, I would say, do people race through it in the same way as you usually would in an escape room. Yeah, I had to recalibrate myself a little bit when I first went in because I found myself doing that thing that I do in escape rooms where Mm -hmm. you're searching and you're Mm -hmm. looking at things. Is this a clue? And then after a while, when you realize, okay, that's not what this is. And then, okay, take a deep breath, step back and then just explore, but for enjoyment, not because you're trying to find something. And so much of that is we try to focus on the onboarding experience and making sure that the person who's checking the guests in for the show gets a good read and understanding of sort of the experience level, or you could think of it like the player type of the audience how much experience they have with escape rooms. If they're coming in with that really hyped energy, try to de-escalate that a little bit or try to just frame the show and the onboarding spiel in a way that primes them for success. And if they've never played an escape room before, give them maybe a little bit more information that will help them do better once they get inside. And a lot of people do tend to have that kind of experience through the show where right at the beginning, sometimes they are a little bit in that escape room mode, but in kind of the first more major scene that's about Josie's childhood, it's basically a forest blended with a classroom. In that area, a lot of people do start to understand that concept of slowing down. So we do see that sometimes with people like a little frantic at the beginning, but when they get to that area and they start listening to the tapes and they start getting a little bit more into the story, that is when people settle into a more traditional track throughout the rest of the They learn that they don't have to tear the room apart. It's like most people's mentalities going into an escape room is like your group goes in, you start looking for all the clues, you get everything out onto a table, you just start doing an itemized inventory almost of the room in the beginning. And we purposefully designed it to try to combat that instinct in the beginning because we knew a lot of people's frame of reference would be escape rooms. For the big narrative pieces or the audio cassette tapes or anything that's related to moving forward, we don't bury that super deep within the rooms. You're welcome to explore, but we teach the player or the guest early on that everything that you need will be sort of at a surface level and you won't have to necessarily dig or tear the room apart in order to proceed. So, right, that's like Jared's talking about training the guest as they go along. And there's a couple things that I liked about what you guys did. Well, first of all, I don't know if we discussed this, but the majority of the story in this experience is told through a series of cassette tapes that you will find as you're moving along and you're carrying along an old vintage cassette tape player and you play these cassettes to get the story. It's very dark. It's a very dark environment. And you're only given one flashlight, right? And the experience only takes one or two people. And I remember my friend afterwards saying, I kind of wish we had both gotten our own flashlight. And I said, I'm glad we didn't because when there's only one flashlight, we are both forced to look at the same thing at the same time. Exactly. And it creates more of that intimate shared experience. You picked right up on it. Having one flashlight tethers both of the audience members together, which one slows them down, because if you were able to divide and conquer with multiple flashlights, I think the experience would be much shorter. And it just would create a different dynamic. You could be in two spaces at once. You could be shouting back and forth. It just... Pulling the people together just makes it a lot more intimate too, I think, and draws focus in a way because it's so dark in there. And that also attributes to the whole ramping down the audience's energy or creating more of an introspective tone throughout the entire piece so that you're not high energy the entire time. It is a deeply intimate and introspective piece throughout. One of the things I tell people when people ask about it and how they should go and who they should play with My answer has always been that the only person that I would want to experience the nest with is my wife, Lisa. I wouldn't want to experience it with anybody else. And that speaks to just how intimate the story is and how vulnerable I felt going through it. Definitely. And I think that is a pretty consistent feeling with a lot of audience members. Oftentimes, by the time people go through the end of the show, 
people will get teary-eyed, some people cry, some people get very emotional because they do connect Josie's story to maybe someone they know, whether it's themselves or their mother or their spouse or a family member of some way, right? The fact that you never see, I think, Josie, the main character, you can create her in this image in your own head that feels very personal to you. And so, yes, it is a very intimate experience for you and a close friend or a loved one to experience together. And also, we never pair up strangers. The nest at its core is a masterclass in environmental storytelling, using items, their placement, and their context to make players feel the story rather than simply telling them a story. Can you help me understand the philosophy and approach that you take to creating a narrative environment? I think story is imbued in everything and placemaking is imbued in everything from the biggest aspects of scenic design and script writing and you know all of the, the high-level design trades, I guess you could say, down to each small detail. So right, we want people to instinctively know where they are. And I think that first starts with designing what the white box version of that space is. For example, I know people on the podcast won't be able to see this. David, looking at where you are, you're in an upper story, right? Like you can tell that right away. I know I didn't even think about that in my head, like on, on right? I knew that in the back of my mind before I even said those words because of that kind of like slanted ceiling that I see behind you. I don't see anything else. It's a plain room besides that, but I already know where you are. You're in a house and you're on the top story of that house, unless there's an attic above you. You are 100% correct. I am in a room that looks like it has almost impossible geometry because of what the camera is doing. And there's sort of a trapezoidal shape going on here. So that's how we always start with design, right? If someone walked in that space, they see nothing except the walls. What do they think that space is in a millisecond? And then, of course, it all goes down from there in terms of what color on the wall, what objects are in there, what props, what are the most important props, and like how are they aligned with the way you enter the space? Are they right in front of you? Is there lighting on them that draws you to them? But it all really starts with kind of that overall, what is that white box room that we understand instinctively the second we enter? Exactly. It's like starting with big broad strokes or like sculpting and working our way down to the detail with the exception that at the end, we usually try to do a little subversion or abstraction on top of all that so that it's this logical progression of what you would expect a room to be or how you are going to evoke certain emotions or feelings of being in, say, a small room makes you feel a little bit more tense, maybe, or if you have to duck, it feels a little bit more personal. But then at the end, we try to just think about how can we make now this different or how can we turn this on its head? So I think there's that last little twist at the end, that sort of artistic expression to Jared, I just wanted to ask about the term you're using, a white box room. What did you mean by that? So basically, the way that I think of it is what would the design be if it was just completely white walls? We haven't put any paint onto it, any wallpaper, any aging. We haven't put any props inside. We haven't figured out what any material is made out of. It literally is if you are making a 3D model, what is the most basic representation of that, of literally just white walls, and that's it. So just the empty room is giving you something totally. and you can either choose to work with that or fight against it but the room itself has an opinion and then in terms of layout we're pulling a lot of that from video games and stuff like that white boxing is a general just early on practice in the beginning stages of developing, say, a level in a video game where you just generally start to box out shape language and layout and start reacting to that. So even in the very beginning of developing the nest, one of the first things we did when we got into the space and it was just a big empty room was to start using cardboard boxes, which was perfect for this show, but also just like painter's tape on the ground so that we could easily adjust it and start playing with different layouts and reacting to it live in the space. Because so much of it is really like you can try to start to do it in a 3D model or digitally, but it's not quite the same as reacting to it in the real space. This reminds me a lot of talking to people who are looking to create an escape room in a trailer, some of these mobile escape rooms, which end up being very long, narrow structures. And my message to people who are making those is you really just have to make sure you want your environment to be something that is long and narrow, an airplane cabin, a submarine, a train car. You don't want to go and put a bank heist into this because 
a bank doesn't feel like a long, narrow room. So just thinking through what the opinions are of the space you have. I think that's so key. Yeah, and leaning into and leveraging your constraints to your advantage, I think. That's something that we talk about all the time. Everybody always says, oh, you got to think outside the box. For us, it's like, we want to understand the shape of the box really, really well. Work with it because the better you do that, then you can start to build outside of it or think of clever ways, again, to be clever about how you work within those constraints. One example, we were talking about the flashlight earlier. When we were first conceiving of the idea for the show, one of our constraints was space, right? Availability. That's something that all immersive creators struggle with. Where am I going to put this show? Where am I going to rent something? thing. So early on, we had this, <laughs> in retrospect, uh, ridiculous uh, notion that we would actually put a show into a storage unit because a storage unit is a really easy space to rent. It's accessible. And it was just a really quick one of our first ideas. Now, of course, you can't actually put, for a lot of reasons, <laughs> a show into a real storage space. I'm sure uh, they'd have a problem with that. But it did start us down this road of like, well, we wouldn't have electricity, so it would be dark and we would need a flashlight because of that. So it would be awesome if guests were exploring the space and it was completely dark with a flashlight. And so you can see even when we then pivoted from the notion of putting it in a real storage room and found an actual legitimate space to put the show in with electricity, we still we're like, oh, no, let's leverage that constraint that we were putting on ourselves before of no electricity and, and put the guests in there with a flashlight. You can really feel that in the final production. We're taking a moment to thank our sponsor, Morty. Morty is a free app for discovering, planning, tracking, and reviewing your escape rooms and other immersive social outings. I believe in it so much that I have a stake in it as an advisor. To celebrate my birthday, I wanted to plan a day with my friends playing escape rooms, followed by going out to a nice, fancy dinner. Sounds like my kind of day. <laughs> of course, that's all I wanted to do for my birthday. So of course I pull out my trusty Morty app to try to find escape rooms that none of my group of friends have played before, which is a very difficult task. And what I discovered was that Morty had added a new feature. <laughs> it's called planning with friends and it was perfect for what I needed. And what it does is, so normally when you're looking for escape rooms, Morty can filter out rooms that you've already played, right? But what this does is now you can go through your friends list, select which friends you're planning on playing with, and then it'll filter out all the rooms that anyone in your group has played. So now you're left with just the rooms no one's played before. It made it so much easier to plan my day. Thank you so much, Morty, for making my life just a wee bit easier. You can learn more at mortyapp.com slash repod. That's R-E-P-O-D to sign up and get a special badge for our listeners. Link and details in the show notes. The location that you guys are in now, it sounds like it was a big space, but when you walk up and you see all the doors on the rooms, it looks like you're in a public storage center. Is the exterior of it, those all those different doors, are those legitimately there? Did you guys install those? Yeah, we were really lucky to find that space. I think I introduced you. Yes, to you did. Terry and from yeah, Frank thank you. It's a full circle moment. Yeah, I know. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> thank you. Oh my god. So, if you guys don't know, this is in the same building as Lab Rat, where Hatch Escapes is in LA, which is an actual 1920s storage unit building. Totally. It's six floors. It's gorgeous. There's uh, kind of an open shaft. I don't know the real term, but like an elevator where you can see the whole like shaft above you as you go up the elevator. It's so cool. And when you get onto our floor, there is that hallway with the old storage drawers on either side. And yes, that is all real to the building. We added, you know, some graphics, haze, aging, right? Like we, we did like the final 10%, but 90% of it was there already. And basically, there was a larger space that had been created by another immersive show, actually, behind some of those doors. So, like, these doors are spaced maybe every, like, eight feet or whatever it is. But once you go in the main door of Josie's storage unit, a lot of the interior walls have been removed to form a larger space in which the nest takes place. But we love that because we want people to feel 
First, when you're looking down that hallway, that we're just going into one storage unit, we're gonna go see Josie's story, but there's like thousands of stories like this, right? Everybody has a story like this. And we see that as a visual representation of those doors repeating down the hallway, each with a different name on it. And we also want the storage room to feel fantastical. And so that, yes, you're walking in this door, you feel like this is only gonna be an eight foot wide space because of the doors next to it, but you soon discover as you keep going back, it just goes on and on endlessly, really breaking the bounds of reality. It felt like we were unfolding the space-time continuum. That's great. That's what we want. Yep, down the rabbit hole. It's bigger <laughs> on the inside. It really feels like a generic storage room where you're just expecting it to be like eight by 10. You go and it's stacked with boxes and you think, oh, that's it. That's all there is to it. The other thing I loved is because it has that old school like freight elevator and it's all open. And so as you're writing up, and this is, I feel like this is your some of the Imagineer background coming through, but as you're writing up, suddenly the music starts filtering through because it's open. You know, you can start to see the lights and like totally. the fog, the smoke coming through. And it, it just got me super excited. So I feel like even on the elevator right up, you're already starting to build some of the story and creating a certain atmosphere. Yep. That's definitely the crossing into the magic circle moment where any onboarding or logistics we've done prior to that. And now that you've gone up this elevator, we are moving into the story world. I have one more topic I want to talk about in this environmental storytelling category. And that's a sin that I, I don't think we talk about enough in escape room and immersive design which is what I call the bookshelf problem. If you take a bookshelf in an escape room, there's the obvious problem that the bookshelf is just filled with loose books and each one is a massive red herring and you just have a giant stack of red herrings. But that is something that has been controlled for by plenty of escape room designers. And I think it's the lesser problem. For me, the deeper issue is with bookshelves, they're really personal. The books that are on a person's shelf and the condition they're in, and the way they're organized, all of these things tell you a lot about a person. When an escape room has a shelf full of random books that were just bought at a used bookstore, that randomness removes the personality from them, and it just feels wrong and hollow. For The Nest, how did you go about selecting the belongings for Josie? Because nearly everything in her storage unit is giving you a glimpse into who she was. So I think a lot of this comes back to how based in reality the propping was. So we had an awesome prop shopper named Stephanie and her family actually liquidated storage units and did a lot of estate sales and things like that. So almost everything that you find in the nest comes from a previous storage unit, a previous owner who was about the same age of Josie. Of course, it's not like exactly the same as Josie, but they're all coming from the same era. They all existed for about the same amount of time in terms of where on the amount of books. That's a big part of it. And another part is when we're prop shopping, we just like to get as many books as you can, <laughs> right? Right? Like just get a bunch, <laughs> get a huge lot of them. And then yes, we'll go through and pick the ones. It's like, okay, Josie loves Hawaii. Let's put a lot of travel books in here. Oh, this part of the story is set in the eighties. So right, what books that we can find are pulled from there. But I think it really does come back to that core of everything that's in the storage unit in the story, it's Josie's. But in reality, it also has lived kind of its own life with its own owner. And you can feel that when you go through the books and go through all the props. Right. And we also kind of tackle it from both angles. We know Josie. We've written that character. We understand the journey that she's going to go through on this narrative. And so we have a good understanding of the types of things we're looking for. But at the same time, we're open to surprises and we're open to finding things and reincorporating the other direction back into Josie's story. While we are specific about the types of things we're looking for, when we're collaborating with Stephanie, we're also saying, hey, look, if there's something that's just so awesome and unique and we can get it for a good price and right, it's like all these things where it's really striking or unique in some way, we're open to now figuring out how that works for Josie. And one good example that really took the design in a direction were those lockers that you find in the forest, those school lockers. And I think we just happened to come upon those. And like I said, we were able to acquire them 
and we were like, okay, we need to just embrace this. This was not on our list before. We did not have this in mind, but all of a sudden it sort of takes that forest into sort of a classroom direction. So now we start looking for a, a school desk and ephemera that's related to her high school days. And that sort of even led to the notion of having the photo developing booth, which we can talk about, I'm sure, into more of a college classroom, her school notes and stuff like that. So you can see how we sort of go at it from both ways. The photo developing section of the game was really resonant and meaningful to me. My father was in the photo industry. I grew up developing pictures. The scent of the chemical fixer, which is one of the chemicals involved in developing a photo, but it is the only one that really has a strong scent. And if you have ever developed photos and you have a scent memory associated with it, it's fixer. Everybody always mentions that smell. That smell sets off so many memories in my head. I, I, I can't even, I'm, I'm even like having a hard time like speaking about it. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that we try to keep in mind things that are not just the environment itself, but the texture of the ground. We try to transition that and contrast that throughout the space. So sometimes you're on wood chips, right? And sometimes you're on sand and sometimes you're crawling and sometimes you're like ducking underneath things and things like the scent of a perfume in one space or a photo developer or fixer in another, or uh, there's a sweet sort of holiday smell over in the Christmas themed area using all the different sort of tricks and stuff too, because you're right. It's like, not only do objects transport you to very specific memories, but things like a, a specific smell can immediately take you to a, a moment in your life. And it's so vivid. You can imagine everything that was around you in that moment. And they're really powerful. I opened up that cabinet and was transported 20 something years. <laughs> it, yeah, it really did something for me. And just to give more context on that too, I think the photo developing thing is a really good example of the type of puzzles that we do to gate the audience from one section of Josie's life to the next. So this takes place in her childhood that'll allow us to move on to kind of her more middle-aged years. And the photo developing task, it's pretty straightforward, right? You open this cabinet, some hanging photos, you see the different tubs that you're going to have to put the photo in, and you see some notes there from Josie's college class of photography and they list out the exact steps to develop the photo. Take it, use the tongs, put it in tray one for 10 seconds, and the next one, then that, right? It tells you exactly what to do. And then there's a reveal on the photo that's developed that gives you a code to open the next lock. And I know like codes and locks are not very trendy in escape rooms anymore, right? It's like very like escape room 1.0. Doesn't matter, it gets the job done. Totally, totally. For us, it was less about the actual act of unlocking the lock was not as important. It was more of that, feeling of we're stepping in Josie's shoes, we're developing the photo just like she did in college. And I don't really have that much to figure out as an audience member. It's just a cool thing that I get to experience that then lets you move on to the next level. And I probably won't mess it up, right? It's just like, let's go through the steps. Let's feel like her. Let's have this cool moment for a bit and then move on to the next stage of her life. I have a question because I was very worried that I was going to mess it up <laughs> while I was doing this. Uh, do people ever actually mess up developing it? Or like, do you have some kind of backup? Or is there like another copy that they can do if they do mess it up? You can mess it up. It is the real process. We're not faking it in any way. To answer your question, though, yes, depending on how much time has elapsed in the show, we do have ways of getting you a second photo so that you can try again. And yeah, if you expose it to the flashlight, the light will expose the photo prematurely if you accidentally did that. So a lot of playtesting went into it to try to prevent that from happening. So we tried to be as straightforward as possible. like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Virtual Escape Games. Virtual Escape Games specializes in virtual team building adventures for teams anywhere around the globe, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. PG, I have gone on a little bit of a journey with online escape rooms where I kind of went from loving them because they were the only thing that I had to getting a little bit frustrated because they were the only thing that I had. And now I'm sort of kind of coming back around to like, you know, I can, I can actually like choose to play one now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's kind of like 
being a homebody, right? Like I love just staying at home, but nobody likes being forced. Exactly. Yeah, that difference between you know I'm choosing not to leave and I am and I can't leave. Like I'm going to be playing a couple virtual escape rooms this weekend, and one of them is with virtual escape games. If you're like me and you've been on a little bit of a journey with virtual escape rooms, maybe appreciate the fact that you can now choose to play them. And the way that I love to do it is playing them with friends who live very, very far away. And that way, it's just bonus time with them. And I really love that about playing online escape rooms. Like David and I live on opposite coasts of the country and we actually have a good time. And I think we do pretty well working together solving these. We do indeed. For non-hosted games, one to six players, you can get 20% off using the code REA20. And for your team building adventures, you can also knock off 20% with the code TB20. All of this is available for you at virtualescapegames.com. These details are in the show notes. I've described the nest as beautifully sorrowful. So much of it is conveyed through the voice acting of Josie, played by Mackenzie Fergins. How did you go about casting and directing a voice actor through so many stages of a person's life? We had a pretty traditional casting process. We had, I think, a few sides, just a short little script for some folks to to do reads on. And we were just really captured by Mackenzie's voice, her ability to convey a wide range of emotions and ages too, because that's something we considered in the beginning was like, if we're going to uh, hear audio from throughout Josie's life, from when she's 12, all the way to when she passes away in her, I think, 60s or 70s, should we have multiple actors portray Josie? And so while we did, of course, for like the really young 12-year-old version of Josie, did have somebody else who was also awesome. We decided to go with Mackenzie for the rest of it because she just had an ability to transform her voice and sort of affect it in ways that were convincing so that we could have that consistency, that emotional consistency, that journey throughout the narrative. She just had a great ability to do that. And we were really taken by the quality of her voice and how well she captured. And I think in terms of directing, this is not really a big secret, but it definitely was something we took advantage of. It is really casting the right person and then letting them do their thing a little bit. And so, of course, we wrote scripts and we do have it like down to the word in our mind. But of course, as you're going through the recording process, it's just giving, again, this is no big secret, but this is the right way to do it. You just give the actor a little bit of free reign so that they can deliver it in the way that best works for their voice and their own tone. And of course, that makes it seem much more natural. That's what we want it to be. This is not like highly dramatized. It feels like you found this tape, you're listening to it, and it literally was just a girl recording a tape on her tape player. And it wants to have that same very casual tone throughout it. So it really is, yeah, just trusting your actors and letting them start with the script and kind of take it a little bit in a different direction. And when there were multiple characters in the same audio recording to make sure that we had both performers there to record together and not separately, because of course it adds to that authenticity that Jared's talking about. For each script, our biggest constraint there was just timing. We want every audio tape to be under 60 seconds or around that really just blocking out the major emotional beats of a script. And then as long as they capture those beats, letting them play and improvise within that. How did you structurally and narratively change the nest between the first run and the second run? I would say we streamlined it quite a bit. In the original version of the nest, we were really excited by this notion that you could find any certain set of tapes throughout your experience and that there would be little secondary tapes that were a little bit more hidden than the core story ones that everybody found. And that if you found one of those secondary tapes, it would really twist the narrative into like a totally different direction. Like it would really impact your view of Josie. And I think that it worked in some ways, but I think that it also detracted in others just because it was quite extreme. We pushed it really far, those little secondary storylines that I, I don't think always resonated with Josie's character all that well. And so for the 2019 version that's currently running, we streamlined a lot of that. And so while there are still secondary tapes that will influence sort of your understanding of the narrative it's just not quite i would say as like extreme or it doesn't pivot as hard as it used to 
when Lisa and I had played it the first time, we found a tape that none of our friends had found, and it completely changed the way we perceived her husband. We saw him as much more of a tragic character, and that was really special to us. We had this view into the nest that no one else had. It definitely resonated with us. Yeah, and I think that is a good example of Jeff is saying it did work in some cases. I think in other cases, it did sometimes confuse people a little bit. And if we do like step back all the way to the beginning, I think part of it too was because when we first designed the nest in 2017, we were thinking it was going to be like an open sandbox of just mm -hmm. go in this space for an hour find whatever you can find. It's not going to be in any order at all. And then in an hour, there's not going to be even like a specific ending, right? Like in an hour, we'll just pull you out of the room and like, that's that. And so I think the 2017 version, even though when we opened it, it was a little bit more linear, it still held on to some of those same concepts. So like it wasn't quite as structured. And I think in some ways it sounds like that could have been a benefit in these cases, but I think in a lot of other ways it was confusing. It's probably just more swingy. You know, you yeah. can have the highs are higher, but the lows are lower. And I think it was, there were so many things that happened in her life. It was like a little bit hard to expand on everything. If there's one tape dealing with this serious subject and one tape dealing with this serious subject. So when we went in 2019, we knew that we were going to gate it in a much more linear fashion. And there was going to be some tapes that people might not find, but for the general sense, most people would find most tapes. And so that kind of allowed us to just expand on things a lot more. Like instead of having those big swings and like touching on things like really briefly and then going to the next really just slowly let the story of her life unfold, which I think probably made her seem more like a normal person and make people have kind of an even stronger connection to her, I think. You also added a ending to the new run, a coda of sorts, a final reflective activity. What is the significance of adding that to the experience? Coda is a great word for it. Coming out of an experience that's that intimate and reflective and emotionally charged, we wanted to give audiences a chance to decompress, not get the bends, right, by coming out of up to surface so quickly. <laughs> it's like you, you need a moment to process what you just experienced. That last room where you spend some time to reflect on your own memories and the prompt is that we want you to write down a memory that is also sort of on the edges of your mind that you feel like you might lose soon because of course the show deals with those themes and then you add it to a little card and you pin it up and so what started as an empty room of just a couple cards that we've seeded in the beginning has now become a, a room that is like really impactful and poignant because it's just chock full of now thousands of these memories. And so we wanted to tie everybody's experience together so that while you did experience the nest by yourself or with just one other person, and it is very intimate and personal, you have this realization that you're not the only one who's been through here and that actually you're part of a really large community who has all witnessed Josie's story and has all impacted them in different ways. The coda at the end broke me. I'm not really a crier, even when I'm feeling a lot of emotions, but that coda hit me. And we can chat about that in the Patreon bonus episode. I'm not sure I'm ready for me to talk about that on the open internet. But it was a beautiful, kind of painful moment for me. And it's something that I really treasure. So thank you for that. Yeah, that's great to hear. A lot of people say it's like what really drives it all home. And of course, this is all just a piece of fiction. But once you're in that room, it, it all of a sudden puts it into sharp focus and makes it very real all of a sudden, right? It's like everything that we've witnessed with Josie might just be a story, but that everything that's in this room is actually extremely real and touching because it's real people sharing some of their most personal memories. It was like an art piece almost. And I think that it was really smart that you posted all of the previous players or the previous people. They had their memories all strung up. And so when you first go in, you're reading through them a little bit before you write down your own. And now you're experiencing everyone else before you it's their vulnerabilities. Everyone else has gone through this process. Totally. It really made it into a safe space for you to allow yourself to be vulnerable because of all of these people before you that had 
done the same thing. And so I just thought it was a great moment because it's not easy for me to open up or to want to look deep inside myself. But because all these other people had, I felt, okay, it's okay for, for me to do it as well. Yeah. And it's a nice parallel, I think, of the first visual that we were talking about when you turn down the hallway and see the dozens of doors on either side of the hallway disappearing all the way into the distance. I think this is also kind of like a nice bookend on the other end of the show too, where it is, again, the whole point of the story is Josie is not, she's not an extraordinary person, but like her story as an ordinary person is still extraordinary. And everybody does have that type of amazing stories to tell, even if they're not an FBI agent or right, how gallivanting around <laughs> yeah. the world. Saving it's right. the world. Yeah, yeah. You know, you don't have to be James Bond to have like an amazing story. And I think you get that hopefully both at the beginning of the show before you go in and again at the end. Yeah, because going in, you feel kind of alone. It's dark and you've got that spooky fog. And then when you're in that last room, it feels a little bit like a group hug because That's you've got the, the, the ghosts yeah. and memories of all the people before you are surrounding you. So I, I really enjoyed that. What made you decide to design an experience for only one or two people? That's a great question because it makes no financial sense. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, you know, not, not, the, not the best business decision. But I think, you know, when Jeff and I made the original show, he was talking, what could we do in a small space? And then we went to storage room and we were really trying to think we're going to do a show for originally two weeks. That's it, right? In 2017, it was going to be a two-week run. We were going to beg our friends and family to see it. No one's going to want to do it. It's going to be weird, experimental. And we thought, what is the coolest immersive experience you could make? And really, at the end of the day, it is probably an experience by yourself or in a very small group. Escape rooms the same way. You don't want to be mixed with other people. A haunted maze is the same thing. Like in the ideal world, you would be the only person going through that. It wouldn't be like Halloween Horror Nights where there's a conga line in front and behind you. In Sleep No More, if you were the only person in Sleep No More, like how cool would that be? But of course, you can't make that make sense in a huge environment. So with our small environment, we were able to do that. Do a one-person show or a two-person show. It works out financially enough. And at the end of the day, our goal was just to create kind of the coolest experience we could to kind of build our reputation as a company. So I noticed that you guys have two people working each show also. So you have a person that greets you, the person that hosts you downstairs, they greet you, they bring you up, they introduce you to the experience. And then I noticed that it was a different person that would call us on the phone during the yeah. experience. Yeah. So again, I was curious why you decided to have two people running the experience. One reason is just logistical. It's easier for us to operate the show more consistently and on schedule when we have a check-in person and someone who's like a show manager running the show. That's the person who's triggering all the cues and all the sound effects and all the technical stuff, who also is in charge of making sure that the show sort of stays on schedule. Because like we talked about before, everybody always gets to the end. And so they're sort of responsible for making sure that we stay generally, you know, the same timing for every show. And then they know when to deliver cues at the appropriate time to push people forward or to slow them down. So it was important to have those roles be a little bit separate. There's also a lot of like reset and turnover stuff that makes sense to have the two different people Hey folks, I'd like to take a moment to talk to you about something that I've been working on with a bunch of people from the team over here for years. We've been wanting to host Recon, the Reality Escape convention in person in Boston for a very long time. And circumstances have halted that effort, but not this year, we're doing it. August 21st and 22nd of 2022 in Boston, Recon is happening. We are blending escape room conference with the tours we've been producing for years to produce a proper escape room convention. You'll meet people, you'll play games, you'll hear wonderful talks. It's gonna be a great time and I truly hope that you come and join us. Tickets for Recon are available now. You can learn more at realityescapecon.com. Details in the show notes.
So before we wrap up, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you a few questions about Imagineering and your collective backgrounds. So what's something you worked on at Disney that you're each proud of? And what details should our listeners look for if they're experiencing it at the park? Oh, gosh. Pick your favorite child. I know. I think <laughs> both of us worked on a lot of the same projects, but both of us were out in Shanghai for an extended period of time. Jeff was there for a really long time. I was there for about nine months during the construction of Base Park. So like the original park and resort before it opened in 2016. Back in Glendale, I had been mostly working on design of the castle. So that was that's really cool. Um, working on a lot of the elements there. Of course, that's like probably now one of the most iconic and most photographed things in China, which is awesome. And then when I was there on site, I was working as art director of Fantasyland Village, which is the little Tudor village. Imagine it's very similar to Fantasyland at Disneyland, right? It's all the little cute Tudor English houses and stuff. There are a lot of like hilarious little details there. And I worked on Shanghai Disneyland on, in the Treasure Cove area, which is Pirates of the Caribbean, more movie related themed land. And I was on and off traveling back and forth to Shanghai for a couple of years there. I was on that project from basically blue sky conception all the way to like installation and opening of that park. So just generally as an experience was really cool to see all those little ideas turn into a real tangible thing all those years later and to be there for the whole experience. It's hard to pick out an exact detail, but just finding lots of opportunities within the props and the murals and the signage and all the art within the land to imbue character details because there are not a lot of performers walking around or characters walking around. So of course, we try to imbue as much character into the world as you can, which in retrospect, we then leverage and turn into the nest with Josie and all these same sort of skills and sort of ways of trying to take a character and describe them without having someone there to tell you their story. And then, of course, I'd be remiss to not mention that I worked on Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, mostly in sort of the village area development area. So anything that's not the two main attractions. And so same sort of deal there, like trying to make every single detail, every little market stall, every little shop proprietor's backstory told throughout the environment. When you're working on Shanghai Disney, are there cultural differences that you have to account for designing a theme park in China that are things you don't have to consider when designing in the United States? Oh, definitely. We have so many weird little quirks in the way that our society in the U.S. operates that we design to. And so mm -hmm. it's the same thing regardless of where you design. And so the way that you usually do that is just by having a great local team and great input and people who can just tell you, oh, this is the way that people tend to want this is even like the type of food that people like this is how they like to eat it in terms of do they want to sit down do they want a counter service do they want to bring their own food this is how people are used to arriving to the park in shanghai people tend to arrive on public transportation right in the u.s people arrive by car so how does the priority of those entrances change that's a big example but it goes down to every aspect of how we live our lives it's just things that you know as Americans, if you're designing for America, you just don't even think about. So it's really interesting. It just lets you reflect almost on your own culture and learn more about a new culture. And then you're like, wait, like, why do we in the U.S. do it like this stupid way? Like, what? I don't know. It's fun. It's interesting. I feel that every time I travel. Yeah. And even with the narrative and or environmental storytelling within the land, like you have all those classic visual gags that you might find at a Disney park. You got to make sure, like Jarrett was saying, that you're collaborating with local designers so that it reads for an international audience, but also for a Chinese audience primarily. So when there's a visual gag, you got to make sure that you're always like checking with folks, but you want to make sure that you're not just translating things directly over that you're considering it. So there were lots of opportunities like that where we would need to adjust or to just make sure that we're considering all types of audiences. And in kind of an interesting way, it does connect back to the nest. As you know, this is not like an exciting announcement or anything, but we've talked with a couple of different people about doing the nest in other countries. Nothing is happening yet. Who knows? But I think that kind of opens those discussions of Josie is an American woman because that's our background. So that's what we wrote. And so when you start to look at other countries, you think, okay, how much of this story do we adapt versus translate, which is what Jeff was touching on. It's not literally just translating what the words were spoken in English. It could be completely adapting the whole story. It could be saying, how would we rewrite the nest alongside with local writers if we did it in 
Germany, let's just say, how would we completely change the story, the puzzles? Are their schoolrooms the same? Would they connect with the props that were in the space? Or would you have to change those? And of course, one answer too is that you don't and you just sell it as a very American experience. So for example, if you think of Tokyo Disneyland, like Tokyo Disneyland, the audience there tends, or at least this is what we were told when we were at Imagineering, the audience there like loves the fact that it's these American stories and there's the Wild West and there's those types of things. So that is definitely a direction you could go of telling an American story to a different audience. Or is the answer really adapting it to a local culture and making it very personal to the people who live there? Yeah, like in the Pirates of the Caribbean themed land at Treasure Cove, we had a lot of jokes or written sort of ephemera and stuff. And we were going back and forth whether or not we would translate that over um, into Chinese or depict it in Chinese. And the answer actually was a resounding no, keep it in English because it's more immersive. It feels more authentic to the story that way and that people will appreciate that more than you know being able to read it. It'll just feel like the whole world is real and not contrived or anything. How does your mindset shift when you're approaching working on an experience for one to two people or something at theme park scale? They both are awesome. I'm very grateful to have worked on both experiences. Well, first, you're starting the same place. What is the coolest story we can tell? But the number of audience members is going to be one of the earliest inputs and one of the earliest constraints you have to totally shift how you're going to tell those stories. So, for example, in a theme park attraction, you're telling a story 30 seconds at a time, right? You're in a scene, you're like whipping through it. It's a much more visceral experience. When you think about writing a script for that, what is a character in that scene going to tell you? It's going to be very different from The Nest, right? At The Nest, you have 60 to 90 seconds to really let that breathe and, and really like get something across. If you're in a theme park attraction, your character maybe has one word, right? They might just say like, run or like, go or like, <laughs> oh my God, that's it, right? That's your script. You have to convey emotions so quickly and so clearly before people are whipped off to the next scene. And that's not a bad thing. That's great. It just means that your experience is going to be more visceral. Maybe you have more setup in the queue, right? Like your story has to be very simple. My favorite example is always Indiana Jones at Disneyland. It's my favorite ride. You don't have to speak English. You don't have to. All you need to know is you looked into this God's eyes and he wants to kill you. He's going to kill you in this room. He's going to kill you in the next room. He's going to kill you in the next room. That's <laughs> it. That's the story. And it's great if you wrote that in a movie or in a book or an immersive show where you have a lot more time. Of course, you would greatly expand upon that and introduce a lot of characters and really flesh out that whole story. Theme park, you don't have time and you don't need it because it's just fun. And then just levels of detail that you have to commit to in terms of design when you're working on a giant multi-million dollar project at Disney, right? You have to design everything down to the last little nut or bolt that comprises a given set piece or whatever, right? Or every little prop has to be decided upon ahead of time. Like we were talking about before, you don't necessarily always have that freedom to go at it from both angles and plan ahead, but also be open to interpretation once you get into the space. You have to commit to all that because it's you're just dealing with a different level of scope and detail. Whereas with immersive, you, we can be a lot more artistically expressive in certain ways and have a lot more freedom to improvise, I guess. And both, Jarrett was saying, there's not necessarily one is better than the other, but they're just very different sort of ways of tackling the same thing. The Nest is closing this summer. Can you share any details about how long people have to still experience it? Uh, we haven't committed to an exact date yet, but we're thinking mid to late summer. So there's probably only a few months left. So I'd definitely say if you're interested in coming to see the show and you've been sitting on it, obviously there's this little thing that happened called COVID that we touched upon. So we know that there obviously some people are slower to get back into things, which is totally fine. I think if you're able and if you're interested, I would say now's the time because yes, in like mid to late summer, we unfortunately will be closing the show. It's had a great run. We have loved it, but we think it's the right time. It's only for one or two people at a time. So it's very safe in general as a way to get back out there without having to expose yourself to a bunch of people. And yeah, it's a bittersweet moment for us, but it just felt like it was the right time. A lot of the point of the nest is that things are finite. Exactly. Yeah. It's like this ephemeral 
feeling. It's like we all have our lives, our moments, and then it's over. And then we have things left behind that tell our stories. So I think it's the same with The Nest. When we close, it'll have this legacy that lives on and that people will talk about. But that's sort of like how it will exist. What comes next for you guys? Good question. Um, there's a couple of irons we have in the fire. Nothing we can really talk about right now, but some fun collaborations. But also there's been a couple of things that we've really wanted to do, including the show that we wanted to do before we remounted the nest. We were looking for spaces for a different show. And then when we saw the space, David, that you uh, introduced us to, we're like, oh my God, we need to bring the nest back. This is perfect. But we want to come back to that other idea we had. We want to get that open. So I think there definitely will be stuff in the future. Just sadly, nothing to tease quite yet. But soon, soon. That's fine. For when you do have something to announce, where can people find you on social media? So you can follow us. We're at Scout Expedition Co. on Facebook and Instagram. And we're at Scout Expedition on Twitter. And you can also find us on our website. It's www.thenestshow.com. We are currently booking tickets for The Nest through mid-May. And we actually did put together a little discount code for listeners. So if you use the discount code realityescapepod, you will get $10 off your booking. Come on out. We'd love to see you. And yeah, I'd love to close The Nest out with a bang. Amazing. We will have all of those details in the show notes. Jeff, Jarrett, thank you so much for joining us. It has been a pleasure experiencing the nest over the years, and it was so much fun reflecting on it. And for me, putting a bow on those experiences with you today. Yeah, thank you so much. Putting the nest on has been a great experience. And thank you, of course, to both of you and anyone else who's listening who has seen the show. We wouldn't make it unless people love it. So thank you for sharing some of your time to come see the show and being a part of Destroy the Nest too. And just a shout out to the cast and crew. They're so immensely talented. The people who run that show every single day and all the folks who helped put together such a wonderful experience. And those folks are all listed on the credits on the Nest's website, which is something that I love seeing. I don't think enough immersive productions or escape rooms are properly crediting the people who lend their voices and their skills and their hands to making these things happen. I also love that you guys, is this a spoiler to say that you, we, we get a little um, souvenir from the show also? Is that a spoiler? Should no, I don't think that's spoiler. a spoiler. <laughs> yeah, you get a, a, like a tiny little takeaway. If you were seeing a Broadway show, when you go see a Broadway show, you get the uh, playbill with all the actors and the crew listed in it. Same idea, right? You get a little one sheet at the end. Again, when you're in that final experience, bringing it back to the real world to, to really, again, like Jeff said, thank everyone for putting this together and just as an acknowledgement of all of their time and talent and skills. The Reality Escape Pod is produced by Lisa Spira, edited by Steve Ewing of Stand Inside Media, and brought to you by RoomEscapeArtist.com, your home for well-researched, rational, and reasonably humorous escape room and immersive gaming content and events. I'd like to take a minute to talk to y'all from the heart. PG and I put a lot into making all of these episodes, as do the team that is off microphone. My wife, Lisa, Steve, our editor, put a ton into producing this podcast. All of this is made possible because of the support from our Patreon community. That financial support allows us to invest in the production value of what we're making and allows us to inch our way towards making this into a proper career. It's hard to monetize content these days, and our Patreon community really does allow us to do that and we're really trying to grow. So we put out extra bonus episodes for our patrons. We have a spoilers club for higher level backers. We've got a Discord chat, and we're always adding new things to the mix for our patrons. So if you love what we're doing, please consider supporting us. It means more than you could ever imagine. And you'll get a whole bunch of extra content too. Thank you again to all our patrons. If you aren't one, I hope you become one. Speaking of our Patreon supporters, I want to take a moment to thank some of our highest level backers. This podcast would not exist without your support. Thank you so much to Breakout Games, Derek Tam, Jonathan Driscoll, 
Byron Delmonico, Paula Swan, Rex Miller, and Scott Olson. Thank you so much for your support. So this was in the 2017 version of The Nest. Oh my gosh. You get a lot of different players. You get a lot of different guests that come and see the show. And typically, like you might expect for an immersive experience, part of that is maybe imbibing a little bit before the show, maybe going out to a bar, a restaurant, having dinner beforehand or whatever. A couple guests uh, in particular, I think, had quite a lot to drink, which it happens. That part's kind of fine. We don't make the show impossible if you're a little tipsy. But these two guests in particular, didn't use the restroom before coming to see the show. So you can see where this is going. We have security cameras and stuff where the show manager can monitor the guests throughout the show. Of course, there are a couple blind spots, and I guess they really had to go, and uh, they found one of those blind spots. And so when they came out of the show, the check-in person usually greets them and does the whole offboarding experience like you might expect and says, oh, how was the show? Did you like it? Let's talk about it as you're walking out. And the guest goes, yeah, we loved it. It was so much fun, except I really, and he was embarrassed. He like caught himself. He's like, I had to go. I had to go in there. And the check-in person's like, wait, what do you mean? Like, was kind of taken aback. Like, what, what are you talking about? Couldn't, like, quite understand what that could possibly mean. And he was saying that there was, like, an accident or something yeah. like that. I was like, oh, my God, are oh, you right, okay? Right, right, right. Like, like, did is you everybody, hurt? Nobody's hurt, right? Yeah, Nobody yeah. Hurt. oh, my God, did you hit something? And he's, no, <laughs> yeah. I just had to go. So we were like, what do you mean you had to go? He's like, well, there was a vase, a glass vase that I just... I used the restroom, I had to go, it's in there. <laughs> and we were just <laughs> shocked by like the possibility, like that this could even happen. But I guess they were so captivated, they were so immersed that they didn't want to stop their experience and they just had to go. 